Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. I think one of the lessons drawn from 9-11 was that we needed a better intelligence service. We need better intelligence to be able to fight a new war, as we used to call it, against international terrorism. And so the language that was used at the time was that we needed a quarterback. We needed somebody who was empowered to be able to shift funds, shift people, and otherwise direct assets, collection assets, against new targets. I think we've had to go through an an adjustment in our expectations about what the director of national intelligence role is in the United States government. This is the unsexy but important plumbing work of U.S. intelligence to try and get the system to work correctly so that the people who are really downrange, like your former colleagues at CIA and, and, frankly, NSA and others, can succeed. What do you see as the key attributes that you would look for in a DNI? I think the DNI, first and foremost, has to have the confidence of the president. Absolutely. I think the DNI has to have some knowledge or some working level knowledge and experience with the way the intelligence community works. I think you've got to be able to come into the Oval Office and talk about the Iranian nuclear program, the state of the Iranian economy, what the motivation might be of the North Korean leader. I also think that the president has to be willing to take any briefings and listen to what's being presented. They can dismiss that advice, by the way. They can dismiss that assessment. It's not that any of these intelligence agencies are always right all of the time. But, you know, you got to get in there and represent. Michael Allen served as the staff director of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence from 2011 to 2013. Prior to joining the committee, Michael was the director of the successor organization to the 9-11 Commission, the National Security Preparedness Group, co-chaired by former Congressman Lee Hamilton and former Governor Tom Keene. Michael also served in the George W. Bush White House for seven years in a variety of national security roles. 
Michael is the author of the book Blinking Red, Crisis and Compromise in American Intelligence After 9-11, the most definitive account on the creation of the Director of National Intelligence. Today, Michael is a managing partner at Beacon Global Strategies, a Washington, D.C. consulting group. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Michael, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. So I have to start with a disclaimer. I, too, work at Beacon Global Strategies. So that's I right. need to put that out there and so my listeners know about it. So now that that's gone, okay. I wanted to say I have been wanting to have you on the show for some time. You and I worked very closely together when you were the staff director of the House Intelligence Committee and I was deputy director. We did. On some very good things like the bin Laden operation and some not so good things like the Benghazi stuff. Sure. But I really enjoyed working with you and I thought we got a lot of good work done and I've been wanting to have you on. And I think this is the perfect moment to do that because the director of national intelligence is in the news There's not great understanding, I don't believe, in what that job is and what it should be. And you happen to be one of a handful of people who are really expert on that because you wrote literally the book called Blinking Red on why the DNI was created um, in the aftermath of 9-11. So I am thrilled to have you on the show to talk about all that. Thanks for having me. Before we get to that, I do want to ask you a couple of questions about the recent news And the first question is about domestic terrorism is in the news. It's in the news because of El Paso. I guess we're still not sure about the the motivations of the shooter in Dayton. Right. We'll see. But clearly, the individual in El Paso was motivated by white supremacy and sending a message. And my question for you on intelligence matters is, what's the proper role of the intelligence community in what is strictly domestic terrorism? I think we have to look to the FBI to be the lead in this particular area. As you well know, Michael, uh, after 9-11, we tried to expand the writ of the FBI, not to be just a law enforcement organization, but also intelligence. And I remember at the time when the executive orders were being drafted in 2004, Uh, the question came up, who would be the lead on domestic terrorism? I remember people at the time talking about maybe the Environmental Liberation Front, ELF, and that was always the example that was used. And everybody said, yes, if it's a purely domestic terrorism situation, the FBI ought to be the lead. So who would, who in Congress would oversee the FBI looking at domestic terrorism? Would it be the intelligence committees or would it be judiciary or how would that work? Well, that's one of the problems in Congress. It would definitely be the intelligence committees because they have jurisdiction over counterterrorism and counterintelligence investigations. But the Judiciary Committee doesn't take that lying down. I mean, they would also expect to be briefed. This is one of the things that there's a lot of creative tension in the jurisdictional setup in the Congress. Do you have a sense to what degree this administration is focused on domestic terrorism as an issue as compared to, say, the Obama administration was? I think that it has become an issue that is increasing in in the public's consciousness in the last few years, for sure. I think that the Federal Bureau of Investigation has been looking at it for some time, and I'm basing this largely on what Director Ray has said in his annual testimony before the Congress. And certainly now, um, after these tragic events that have really been going on for a while now, and not just in the United States, there have been other 
similar things going on, it feels like, in Europe. I feel like this is going to swiftly rise to the very top of the FBI's agenda. So, Michael, the other issue I want to ask you about, and I know that a lot of your current clients ask you about this all the time, is the U.S.-China trade war, which in the last 24 hours has gotten worse. And, and I'd love your sense for what do you think the Trump administration is thinking about this? What do you think the Chinese are thinking about this? And is there a resolution to this in the you know, near to midterm or is this going to go on for a while? What's what's your sense of what's motivating both sides and and, and where we're headed? I think this is going to go on for some time. Um, I have sort of shorthanded this as there have been skirmishes so far. But to me, really, the trade war began in earnest last Thursday and here into the day after where we've declared China a currency manipulator. Um, we are empty- emptying the barrel. They are shooting back at us. And I think we are in for a long ride here. I just don't think that we are getting where we need to get uh, the United States on the structural reforms that are important to us. I don't think the Ch- Chinese can give on some of those and particular by structural issues. reforms you mean? I mean the subsidies that are given to national champions, Chinese companies that compete with U.S. companies around the world. Subsidies I, from the Chinese government. From the Chinese government. And I also mean forced technology transfer. As you know, Michael, this has been one of the bipartisan issues in the Trump era of people saying, you know what, we needed to get tougher on China. And we're worried about our intellectual property transfer. And so those are really, really hard things that we're asking for. We've got to make some progress on it. I don't think the Chinese are willing to give on them. And I don't think that they have experienced enough pain, which actually gets to sort of an interesting economic, maybe even intelligence issue, which is what's driving the leadership in China Do they feel like they need to compromise? And is that related to the health of the Chinese economy? You know, you have to think that as the pain rises here and as the risk of a recession rises here, it gives President Xi in China some confidence that we might be the ones who end up rolling rather than China. So it gives him a sense of hanging tough. I think so. I think so, especially in the last few days, especially with the way the stock market behaved. Okay, the DNI. Director of National Intelligence. Maybe the place to start, Michael, is why was the DNI created? Good question. That's why I wrote the book, frankly, because so many people still ask that question. I think one of the lessons drawn from 9-11 was that we needed a better intelligence service. We need better intelligence to be able to fight a new war, as we used to call it, against international terrorism. And so the language that was used at the time was that we needed a quarterback. We needed somebody who was empowered to be able to shift funds, shift people, and otherwise direct assets, collection assets against new targets. And so frequently they used the term quarterback. And I think as the book tries to unpack, and I think as we've experienced this over the last dozen years or so, that we've not lived up to that sort of uh, supposition that we're creating this all-empowered person who can direct 
this sprawling enterprise called U.S. intelligence. So you were in the Bush White House yes. at the time that this debate was raging. That's right. Correct me if I'm wrong, but if I remember right, the Bush administration was initially opposed. Walk me through why and what ended up changing that. The idea for a more empowered director of national intelligence was an idea that had been around literally since the National Security Act of 1947. Most people had resisted it over time because they believed, hey, you know what? We've already got a director of central intelligence. That's the CIA director's job. Um, And I think that was the initial view of the Bush administration was, hey, you know what? We've undergone tremendous organizational change already after 9-11 with the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. So why get into this very exquisite type of surgical operation. Um, I think, however, that once the 9-11 Commission came out the way they did um, in the heat of a presidential election. They called for it. They called for it. Yeah, sorry. They came out and recommended a super empowered director of national intelligence. I think it then just got into the political ether and people were outdoing, trying to outdo themselves on who was going to be more supportive of what this famed bipartisan group of experts had recommended. Now, there's controversy, but that was part of the political equation. And it's my understanding that the 9-11 families also played a role here. Very big role. Pushed pushed really hard, the 9-11 Commission recommendation. They really did. They were out there. They they really helped... um, They really helped engineer one of the greatest lobbying efforts ever. They were up on the Hill, and they made sure a lot of members of Congress, especially in the Senate, were faithful to what the 9-11 Commission had recommended. Okay, great. So what is the DNI supposed to do? What do you think the key things are that should be in a DNI's job jar? If you were the DNI, how would you prioritize how you spent your day? So I think we've had to go through an an adjustment in our expectations about what the director of national intelligence role is in the United States government. As I mentioned, people at the beginning thought it would be a quarterback. They thought that if a new threat arose, that it would be the director of national intelligence who could move a cell of people from the National Security Agency to work more closely with CIA folks in order to attack a new threat. I think as we got into this more and more, we realized that's not actually a practical way for the DNI to operate. And the DNI settled into a more strategic role, which was where does the United States intelligence community need to invest over the medium to long term? How can we resolve disputes within the inter-intelligence community process over budget and policy and the rest. And so I think, and I often say this, this is the unsexy but important plumbing work of U.S. intelligence to try and get the system to work correctly so that the people who are really downrange, like your former colleagues at CIA and, and frankly, NSA and others, can succeed. So, Michael, you were in the Bush White House both before the creation of the DNI and then after the creation of the DNI, and then you were on the Hill after the creation of the DNI. Do you think the creation of the DNI improved the performance of the intelligence community? I think it has because some of the debate 
has changed about the viability and importance of the director of national intelligence. And let me give you an example. When the Congress is faced with a crisis in the intelligence community, it needs someone to turn to to deal with a particular problem. Things have gotten more complicated. It's not just a CIA problem anymore or an NSA problem anymore. Things have become uh, a problem for the 17 agencies across the intelligence community. So Edward Snowden comes out. The administration and the Congress need someone to turn to to try and do not just damage assessments, but also how did this happen, what policy judgments need to be made to make sure this doesn't happen again or whatever needs to be reformed. You're not going to ask the NSA to help reform themselves after something. So you need like the DNI to turn to. And I think people began to see you know what, this is a useful place for people, for us to be able to turn to. Yeah. What about in terms of managing, trying to close collection gaps? You know, when there's there's something that we need to understand in the world that we don't, the ability to manage that process so that that gets done and there's not a lot of overlap uh, in the process. So my sense is that the DNI has not succeeded in a particularly notable fashion here. I know they're trying. I know that they want to look over the horizon and say, hey, you know what? We really need to shift collection to, for example, China over time. But they can write plans. They can try and make sure things are coordinated. But at the end of the day, I think CIA and NSA, and I keep mentioning them because they're the two real organs of the intelligence community, are largely making their own budgetary decisions on what they need to perform their missions. Um, And so I don't think that the DNI is able to move people or reach into, of course they can't reach into a station somewhere in Asia and shift their collection priorities, at least certainly not in the medium term. And so I think that's where the DNI struggles. And uh, I think there's a fair debate here about whether the DNI should even be involved in this other than at a strategic level. So what do you think? I think that the DNI does need more authority to be able to shift priorities over the medium term. I really do. I don't think that people if left to their own devices are going to be able to get out from what's in their inbox. I think that's one of the lessons that we learned from 9-11. Um, and so I think Congress, and by the way, people ask me all the time, what would you do to strengthen the DNI? And there are legislative fixes that you can do it. But what you really need is a president of the United States to embrace the director of national intelligence and say, this is my person in the job. Everyone listen. This person has authority and this has my support. And we need to move forward on an agenda that the DNI has laid out. And I think that sends a signal across you know, disparate parts of the intelligence community that, you know what, we need to cooperate with this person. We're going to take a quick break, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Michael. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Every week, an extended conversation at a restaurant in our nation's capital with newsmakers like Democratic Senator Mark Warner. What we want to try to do is give the American people the truth. President's attorneys Jay Sekulow and Rudy Giuliani. It is a no collusion, absolutely no obstruction. Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang. I think we should have a psychologist in the White House. Politics, policy, and a side of pop culture. The Takeout with me, Major Garrett. 
So, Michael, one of the things we look at when we talk about what difference a DNI made has made is the community itself. But one of the things that I've thought about and I actually saw play out was that the creation of the DNI actually strengthened the CIA. And I know that sounds odd. And the reason I say that is because it allowed the director of CIA to spend all of his or her time worried about the CIA and not have to be worried about the community. And I just imagine what it would have been like under the old DCI system when Snowden happened, because it would have meant the head of the agency, the DCI, would have had to take all that time, spent all that time on the Hill, all that time with the media, right, rather than having somebody else do it. So I, I think that was a huge plus to the agency. And I know most of my former colleagues don't feel that way, but, but I saw that. I totally agree with you. General Hayden said something similar. So did the 9-11 Commission, which was the, the, the world has gotten so much more complicated. The CIA director has more than a full-time job in running the collection and covert action functions of, this, of, of CIA, doesn't have time to manage what satellite the NRO is going to come online with 20 years from now. And so I do think that was an important innovation as well. So, Michael, there's also a debate about the size of the DNI staff. You know, some say it's too big. Some say it's not too big. Some say there's too much bureaucracy. Some say there's not. What's your view? I think there are a lot of uninformed people who just like to say since 9-11 that, oh, my God, this staff has just grown um, like topsy. I think it's fair for Congress to take a tough look at it, by the way, but you also have to look at what the statutory mission of the DNI is and then make an assessment of do we have enough people behind it. So just quickly, we created a national counterproliferation center. And you and what everybody knows even better than that is the NCTC, the National Counterterrorism Center. And I don't know a lot of people who are trying to cut their mission or cut their number of people. And so when you start with that, oh, and then the counterintelligence executive. Those are the bulk of the people right there. That's the bulk of the people. And so, um, and then you put in a healthy staff in order to sort of do strategic analytical looks across the community. And then you're up to 80% of the people in the ODNI. So I don't think this is, this is just something that people like to say that has been ingrained in people's heads that aren't like studying this. Having said that, do we need a big study of how is this working since 2004? I'm on board with that. So, Michael, who was the best DNI that you saw? Well, this is a very, very tough question here. I mean, this gets back to another function of the DNI that we haven't talked about yet, and that is that the DNI is the principal intelligence advisor to the president of the United States. Um, and this gets in a little bit to what's President Trump going to do now that uh, Director Coates is leaving. Um And I wonder if you might agree as someone who was a PDB briefer and was in the Oval a lot. I think the DNI, first and foremost, has to have the confidence of the president. Absolutely. The president has to be able to look at this person and say, I believe in them, I trust them, and I will defer to them on many, many issues. That's not to say the president can't have his own views. Of course he can't. So I think that that really, really matters a lot. Um, I think Director Clapper definitely had the confidence of President Obama. I did. I think Mike McConnell did as well. Um, but everybody had different strengths depending on 
what you were trying to accomplish. I think McConnell was more trying to make the community work. Um, but look, you got to have the confidence of the president so that when you walk into the Oval Office, the president's going to say, all right, I agree with that intelligence assessment. And I reject, you know, conspiracy theories about how the CIA arrived at that conclusion. So, Michael, what do you see then in addition to to the confidence of the president, which I agree with completely? What do you see as the key attributes that you would look for in a DNI? I really. If you were in your old job at the White House and you were asked to put together a list of the replacements for Dan Coats, what would the criteria that you would use to put somebody on that list or not? So it would be confidence of the president, which we just talked about. I think the DNI has to have some knowledge or some working level knowledge and experience with the way the intelligence community works. It's too vast. It's too complicated for someone to just walk in totally cold and have a real agenda on where they want to see the community move. Um, I think the next DNI has to come in and say, here are the three or four things I want to accomplish during my term, um, and they have to have the ability to get that done. And you're not going to get there if you just show up for the first time. It's a big, complicated place. It's a big, I mean, and we hear, we say this all the time, but, you know, let's, let's, let's say it again. It's an almost $80 billion enterprise with 17 agencies or offices, if you count some of the things within, the, within DOD. But that's a lot. That's a lot. So confidence of the president, knowledge of intelligence. Would you put on that list some knowledge of foreign policy, national security? I would. I think you have at least got to have had some sort of working knowledge with this. Um, I think you've got to be able to come into the Oval Office and talk about the Iranian nuclear program, the state of the Iranian economy, what the um, motivation might be of the North Korean leader. I think you've got to talk about the state of the Chinese economy. You've got to talk about currency manipulation, I think, at some level, although that's largely what the Treasury Secretary does. I think you've got to be a player on a lot of issues. Let's face it. You've got to be willing to come in early, read up, get briefed, and go in there and do your job. By the way, I also think that the president has to take regular – any president has to be willing to take any briefings and listen to what's being presented to him or her. Um, they can dismiss that advice, by the way. They can dismiss that assessment. It's not that any of these intelligence agencies are always right all of the time. But, you know, you, you got to get in there and represent. Do you have any idea how often President Trump is receiving his intelligence briefings? Not beyond what's in the newspapers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. It was – it seemed to be almost every day when Mike Pompeo was at CIA because of the – deep trust the president had, going going back to that confidence, right? That's right. The deep trust that the, the president had in Mike Pompeo, it, it seems to have decreased a bit. Maybe that. so. Maybe yeah. so. Yeah. So, Michael, what about relationships with the rest of the national security team and, just as importantly, relationships with the heads of the intelligence agencies? So I think that Heads of the intelligence agencies is is really important. But I would put right after the president the relationship with the secretary of defense. That may surprise you a little bit that it's not the CIA director. But I remember George Tenet when I interviewed him for my book talking about how it was a myth that he and Rumsfeld were implacable foes. Um, I think they disagreed a lot and maybe on policy matters and the rest. But 
that was the most important relationship, I believe, to George Tenet. And he went out there constantly to meet with the Secretary of Defense. Why? And this gets to one of these issues on why the why the DNI may or may not be successful. And that's that two or three of the giant organs of intelligence, let's just talk about NSA and NGA, are in statute what we call Title X agencies. And that means that they have to support the warfighter. By the way, if you read Breaking Red, you see how much Secretary Rumsfeld fought on this particular issue on the Hill, and so did his folks on the House Armed Services Committees and the rest. And their argument is is that these particular agencies, first and foremost, need to be able to supply tactical intelligence, tactical battlefield intelligence to the warfighter. And we don't want them coming off mission for other strategic national priorities. And so this is an inherent tension, and you got to be able to have a good relationship with SecDef in order to try and resolve And if I remember issues. correctly, Secretary Rumsfeld won most of those battles. He won a lot. He won a lot of them. So he, he actually, at the end of the day, ended up weakening the DNI's role as leading the national intelligence because he wanted to maintain that control you're talking about. Yeah, and then I think uh, Admiral Blair picked a couple of fights and may not have been able to succeed um, in the early Obama years, which also, I think, sacked the DNI for a loss. So when we look at all those attributes, I have two questions for you. When you look at all those attributes, would Congressman Ratcliffe had made your list? I was happy that he would have had the support of the president, and I was pleased that he was on the House Intelligence Committee. But I'll be honest with you, I did not know him well. Yeah. I knew of him. But he doesn't him. seem to have anything else you mentioned besides that one thing. I knew of him in the sense that Republicans on the Hill that I know were mentioning to me, uh, he's a good member, you should talk to him. But, you know, I admit I, did, I didn't know him. You know, some of the other um, names that are out there, Pete Hoekstra, did you work with Pete on the committee? Very much so. He became the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee virtually in the middle of the 9-11 Commission recommendations or at the very beginning. And he was known as uh, one of the big four who helped negotiate what we call the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act of 2004. And so he played a big role in trying to ensure that the DNI had substantial authorities and he went up against Duncan Hunter, who was chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. Would you be comfortable with Hoekstra? I would. I would. I think Pete Hoekstra is an honorable person. Um, He's been a a longtime member of the committee. He has the confidence of the president. I think he's been over in Europe. um, Ambassador to the Netherlands, I believe. Yes, I think probably getting really steeped in some of our alliance issues and friendships over in Europe. And so I think he fits the bill. What about your former boss, Mike Rogers, former chairman of the House Intelligence Committee? Definitely so. I mean, Chairman Rogers would be uh, an extraordinary DNI. He not only was a well-known bipartisan, nonpartisan member of the House of Representatives, but especially so when he was chairman. As you know, he was an FBI agent, so he has that on-the-ground perspective. When he traveled, he wanted to go out deep in the field. He didn't want to go to garden spots in Europe. He wanted to go, you know, 
I remember. To campfires. Yes. Yeah. He yes. was uh, he wanted to go sit around with CIA officers literally downrange. And so he would be uh, an amazing choice. So, Michael, maybe we can just shift gears here at the last couple of minutes and let me get your perspective on the big challenges facing the intelligence community. And I'm not talking about Russia, China, Iran. I'm talking about the capabilities making sure that the IC has the capabilities to be on the cutting edge in defending the nation both today and 10 years from now. How do you think about the big challenges that whoever the DNI, the next DNI is, that they really have to grab and tackle? Well, I mean, let's start with the role of social media. I mean, for years we've talked about what kind of sensors we need. Do we need satellites and what kind of airplanes? Now, all of a sudden, I, you know, I'm struck by this anecdote, maybe you'll like it too, that um, one of the ways President Obama allegedly, I don't know if this is absolutely true, learned about ISIS taking the Mosul Dam was that someone showed uh, the Obama White House uh, a, a tweet from one of the ISIS members who had, of course, just like people would do here in the United States, took a picture of themselves out there on the Mosul Dam. I bet that beat. CIA or anyone else's. I do know the the one one of the first ways we knew that the Russians were in Ukraine was through social media. Yeah, isn't that amazing? I mean, it, so it's not just what do we hear from CNN and what are you hearing from your ambassador? You're being blitzed with this information. And add to that drones and social media. I mean, we have a lot new a lot of new stuff uh, that we need to go with. It might be. It may be by the way, that that's cheaper and we should build platforms that aren't $2 billion drones that fly over the Persian Gulf and get shot down. I mean, maybe you have 10 of those that are much cheaper that can achieve the same mission. But I think we have got to be thinking creatively about how collection is changing. Uh, the other thing is, of course, trying to make sure the intelligence community adapts and is able to get a hold of some of our technological advantage and pump it into the everyday mission of CIA and NSA. I have the impression they do a pretty good job of that through uh, CIA's venture capital arm, which I know you're familiar with, and I think you've had Chris Darby on this show NQTEL. called NQTEL. Um, but I think those are two of the big challenges. The president's attacks on the intelligence community how should we think about those? I think that this is part of the president getting more comfortable with the people who serve him. Um, I think it was a surprise to the president. It was a surprise to most of the country when he was elected that night. Um, I don't think, you know, he didn't grow up here in Washington getting briefed by CIA or understanding its mission. And that's not a criticism. That's just where he came from. And the American people voted for him. But I think that his first experience with the intelligence community may have been on this Russia matter, which he was a skeptic about. In retrospect, he might have had some justification for, you know, how he was briefed on certain things in the early days. Um, and so I think he got a negative impression. I don't think that's the right view of the intelligence community. But I think that, you know, I can sort of analyze it and see how I might have come to some of these conclusions. But you mentioned it. I mean, Pompeo was an excellent CIA director. 
and the president had confidence in him. That's what's important over time is to let the president know that, hey, you know what? These people are here to serve you. So, Michael, when did your book come out? 2013, I think. So it came out in 2013. Um, it's called Blinking Red, Crisis and Compromise in American Intelligence After 9-11. And it, it's one of those books that lives forever because it's a history of why the DNI was created. And this is a perfect time um, to go get that book and read it if you're interested in this whole uh, director of national intelligence issue. Michael, thanks for spending time with us. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. That was Michael Allen. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Enya Guitart. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free starting May 1st with a 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.